0: Let's move on to the second half of this conversation then, um, because I think we, we you know, we've talked about prosperity. We've talked about, uh, you know, the fact that we live in a society that conditions us to be consumers and to want more, um, the, uh, in the doctrine and covenants, um, there's in section 104, there's a verse that specifically says the earth is full and there's enough to spare. Um, and, uh, so I want to talk about what does fullness look like and what does enoughness look like? What does it mean to have enough as both an individual and as a society? Um, and I think to, you know, a good, a good uh, kind of foray entrance into that, that topic is uh, the question, why is it so hard to let go of the story of wanting more? Why is it so hard for me to say, ah, oh, it's okay. I have enough. <laughs> <laughs> Mm,
1: great question.
0: Or maybe it's just a problem that I have and you guys are, you know, completely free of the problem of more. No, 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 no. no. I,
1: I can say, I can say as a middle child, <laughs> um, and I would say this somewhat jokingly, but like the mindset of a middle child, for example, is that you got to grab something before someone else does. Right. That like, even the very, you know, very kind of almost silly, example of just like being at the dinner table and like um <laughs> oh gosh it just makes me laugh that i'm actually bringing this up but like that that was a real thing like growing up as a middle child of just recognizing that like you know the p- people above and below you have these different roles and that um like that i was overlooked in some ways and my family will just mock me for this but it's true <laughs> that like there's evidence of just being like overlooked as a middle child and not and feeling like you have to um, kind of hoard your little bit before someone else takes it and says like, no, like (laughs) you have to give this away to someone else. So like, no, I, I understand that feeling. um, And I think it's related to, you know, my limited view of both what is available. Right. And also it's related to my limited faith in a God that provides right. And a God that loves And I think it's often hard to let go of that feeling of I need to gather and hold on to what I have because um, my hope and my faith in a God that is so willing to give has diminished that my faith is not always where it could be to carry me um, contentedly from one phase of life to the next, right? One situation of life to the next where I see, oh, I I don't have what I think I need. And then um in pausing and, and waiting for um and faithfully waiting on the Lord seeing that like oh it was coming all along right it was gonna it was there all along or the need diminished right I'm like oh I don't actually need you know twelve coats right <laughs> and yet my closet is you know full of that and so again, I think guilty it's related of that same to, problem
0: <laughs> I think
1: it's related to that that you know those principles of faith and hope and understanding the nature of god and our role and i and i say i joke about my role as a middle child but i think the sincerity is in understanding my role as a child of god of of a, a loving of loving heavenly parents who really want to provide and are waiting for me to either ask or be patient enough to receive
2: yeah, that's so well said. And even the analogy, I mean, I think we can all relate in some degree um, to that analogy that you gave of being the middle child. I, I do think a lot of it stems from perhaps some of our uh, like perceptions as a child. Um, but also I I think of, you know, perhaps our idea of enough is also skewed in some ways that like by relinquishing you know, that extra dinner roll. Uh, and and now I'm obviously continuing this analogy, but just, you know, that that if we didn't have it, that we wouldn't have enough, you know, but that again, you know, to reiterate the faith that Rachel expressed and, and saying that that's kind of what we're missing in this sense is that by relinquishing those, we're saying to God, we don't have enough faith that he will be able to provide or that, you know, the, the amount that we have um, and giving up even a fraction of that is then saying, uh, you know, we don't have enough even without that. Um, and so I think that in some ways it's just a, a perception, an issue of perception um, or kind of a skewed narrative um, that we've provided ourselves that we don't have enough Um, and it's probably all relative going back to previous things that we've talked about. Um, comparison is such a toxic, um, problem that we experience so rampantly in our culture. Um, and that by, by comparing ourselves to others, we will never have enough. Because we'll never have as much as, you know, that person next door, or even if we do have more than someone, we judge ourselves based on that too. And, and give ourselves that ram once again to, to, uh, you know, prop ourselves up on and say, I do have more than that person. And so I think it's kind of this, this nature of comparison as well, that also filters through um, our perception of enoughness.
0: Yeah, no, and I, uh, I, uh, that makes me think back again to, you know, that what we said at the, the beginning, um, with, with God saying, or King Benjamin saying the we're, we're like the dust of the earth, you know, it, when I'm in the, in the business of comparing myself to others, that's an ego trip. It's an ego trip on both sides of of the equation, whether or not I don't have enough or whether or not I have more than someone else. It's an ego trip because I think it's all up to me. Right? Um, and if I can surrender that story and say, no, it's it's not up to me, it's, So I think at the heart of this, there's this idea of work and reward. There's, you know, planting and then there's harvesting. Uh, and uh, I, there's this, I think we we get into trouble when we think there's a direct causation between our work and our reward what we get out of it. And there is certainly a relationship there, but it's not exactly the relationship that we think it is. Um, one of my favorite principles of Eastern spirituality in the Tao Te Ching, in, the, in, in Buddhism, in the Bhagavad Gita, in Hinduism, is this principle of detachment, um, that there is a separation between the work that I do and the reward that I get, or the, the return that I get from the universe, right? And we've already kind of alluded to this that there are other actors in play beyond myself, right? If I plant a, if I plant a tomato seed, right, there are there's more at work in the equation than just myself. So if I don't get tomatoes on the back half of the season, it could be something that I did, but it might not be something that I did right and so i need to cultivate a sense of detachment from from the work that i do and the, the 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 whatever the universe returns back to me and that that detachment isolates me from thinking that anything that i have is something that i deserve because that idea of deserve is an ego trip and if we can eliminate that idea of deservedness i think we're we're on the right track
1: mm-hmm. That's a good thought. Um, I'm, I'm thinking through the connections of um, our reliance on um, not only other people, but on the earth itself. Um, Something that you said reminded me that like, we don't come into this world alone, right? We come into this world connected physically to a mother that has like born us of her body, right? Through water and blood and flesh, you know, we've come out connected, um, and remain connected to our mother for quite some time. And then, you know, remain reliant on the, the abundance of the earth, right, to be fed and to, to grow. And so, um, I, I think of also in Genesis being struck by the order of creation, right. Of, of, of us of man and woman coming last and I I, and I think and I've written about this before um, the significance of recognizing that order of creation is that we are meant to see ourselves as part of this interconnected relationship between you know not only elements of the earth but the life also on the earth the plants and the animals that um, that we gain our sustenance from but by coming last I think we're meant to be humbly reminded that like our role is you know we are one one part of this process not the top of this process and we weren't created first we were created last because god formed the earth for us and for the purpose of you know the things that we might need but also to remind us that he is the creator and that um, our role in this in this plan of salvation right is to is to find our place amongst the things that um, give us the sustaining life that we have as physical beings, right? And if we if we can't learn that lesson, then we don't end up in his presence, right? Like you were saying back to the covenant of the Book of Mormon, if we don't learn that interconnected lesson, we're not even invited into his presence spiritually, right? And that is a whole nother level of being interconnected um, because we are in god's presence when we are like him right when we are a reflection of him and so again like that ecological principle of being connected to the to the very substance of the earth that we are a part of like, it's it's a it's meant to teach us right it's meant to to be a teacher and show us that like the things that we need to learn and that we need to act on are um are right right before us i guess is what i'm trying to say
0: I think uh, something that Lowell Bennion, uh, you know, that we can see in Lil Bennion's life is this this idea of the consecration of work. And what does it mean to consecrate in our work, um, especially given this idea of interconnectedness that Rachel brought up and the idea of detachment is can we learn to do our work for the work's sake itself and not for something on else, right? Because if we, if we do, if we, we live our lives for the sake of something else, I think at the end of our lives, we're going to, we're going to realize we, 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 we screwed up, right? But if we can, if we can do the work, if we can live our lives for their own sake, and if we can enjoy the mundanity and, and the, 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 the beauty of our own life for its own sake, we, we have everything, Right, and so I think that's that's what consecration means is is doing things for their own sake.
1: That's really beautifully said, and I honestly like this conversation is like such a joy, and I feel like I'm learning so much. And like Abby, I was worried that I didn't know enough about Lowell Benyon, and luckily, you know everything (laughs) about Lowell Benyon. So I really, I'm like so grateful. I'm like, ah, that's why that we're together as a group because then we're each like bringing. Unique experiences and knowledge, and I think that's incredible. Um, and to your comment, um, Madison, of just that is the ultimate task, right? Of like recognizing how to do a thing for the sake of the thing and not for the intended benefit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that reminds me a lot of my role as a special education teacher, and I taught, um, I taught. Uh, middle school students who were emotionally disturbed, that was kind of the classification. So they had, you know, issues with um, being on the spectrum or ADHD or depression or trauma that they were kind of processing. Um, And the really difficult lesson of recognizing that my role as a teacher was to assist them, right, assist them in their journey to learning how to learn right to learn how to like learning and to be comfortable in a classroom and yet so often their responses or their reactions were directed at me but not really about me and learning to disassociate you know whether it was the the kicking or the screaming or the middle fingers or the swear words directed at me that like my job wasn't to get um, them to like me or to receive from them praise or affection it was to assist them in adapting to an environment that um was for their benefit right and like that like you said and that's kind of maybe more of a stretch but like that task of learning to enjoy work that doesn't have a direct you know um what i want to say like maybe a direct um nod to my how great i am right to not that gratification of like oh you're so awesome like here's a trophy for being you and you're so good at what you do or whatever Removing that and recognizing that like the 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 glory of that job is the work itself, right like the work and sweat and tears of whatever job it is you're doing that um, that that is the benefit, right that like that is the the mark of the life being well lived, right is that you're working um, enjoying you having joy in the work and not the perceived outcome or the perceived um, report back to you of like, Hey, you did a, a really good job (laughs) on that. It's like, that's not, that's not the goal, right? That's, that's not finding the, the, the ultimate reward in um, receiving praise back or something like that.
2: Yeah, no, that again, that reminds me of something else, um, just to further that idea of its connection with Lil Bunyan, but just, um, that he said, you know, unlike other religions, we, we don't believe, that the body is inherently evil, um, but rather that it's this wonderful instrument through which, you know, we as, as men and women, um, can find joy and then realize the purpose of life. Um, and I think that's, what's so important about, like you said, work, um, and our ability, ability to recognize kind of the physicality, Um, But also just the nature of work as being important to us seeking and finding joy um, in this life. And, that you know, even as mundane or even as challenging as work, um, I mean, like what you just talked about being hit or, um, you know, yelled at by by kids that it's not necessarily the work (laughs) itself, but but the actual, you know, production of work and, and participation in work.
0: Yeah. No, I, yeah, and uh, I know. Oh no, go Rachel.
1: Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I know any parent would be like, try being a parent, you know, like you're <laughs> just a And I'm like, yeah, you're right. That's, that's very true. Um, but, and to your point, Abby, of just the work itself is, is always trying to progress something forward. Right. That like the evidence and the joy of our work can be seen that incremental growth. Right. And I think that's why, You know, Lil Benyon was um, always asking his boys at the ranch to be working in the garden or working on the land because you see incremental progress and growth. Um, Your interaction of work with the earth does show that slow and steady progress, right? And I think he found a lot of joy in that, right? Of just like, you're watching something grow, but it takes that patience that it's not an immediate gratification type of thing. And I think that principle of... um, work produces progress, right? However slow or small, and that is where you can find a lot of joy as well, right? I've seen, and I'm sure a parent, I know a parent would feel that way because even as a teacher, I felt that way. I've seen the, the, the fruit of your work is seeing a kid, you know, learn to enjoy something that they didn't enjoy before, finding confidence in something they didn't enjoy before. So again, like progress I think is related progress and growth, right. Is related to that principle of like working for, um, a long-term goal right? or a long-term, um, success, I guess. I
0: don't know. Well, I, so I'm struck, um, recalling back, uh, in, in the book of Abraham in the creation story that this is how God works. You know, God, God does the work. He, he, he says, you know, let there be light and then he waits For the, for the, the matter of the universe to organize itself to, to the work that he did. And I'm sure with, with God, you know, there's probably some divine, you know, spirit magic that is assisting the process, the process a little bit, but there is that sense of detachment and that sense of consecration of work that God, God is God because God can do the work for its own sake. And God has learned how to how to do things sabbatically. I, I what I really love Adam Miller um, in Letters to Young Mormon. He he has a chapter on Sabbath, and he talks. The, the entire chapter is devoted to this to this practice of doing things for their own sake. Um, and I think uh, what's you know it's really easy to enjoy eating ice cream for its own sake, right? It's really that's just it's really easy to do that. But I think what's more difficult is learning how to do that with some of the things that are more mundane in our world, right? Like doing dishes, like, like weeding or like breathing, even the most mundane thing that we do. And I think that, and, and George Hanley talks about this in the book, learning to like life is it's the, the key idea is you got to learn how to like this stuff because some of it, some of it is just so like dull and gray that it would just pass you by. But if you can learn how to savor it and learn how to appreciate it and learn how to enjoy it for its own, for what it is on its own terms. You all of a sudden are covered. Your your entire being is just a wealth of abundance that you can just, you know, rest in, that you can just be in all the time.
2: Yeah. I um, really like the examples you used because um, actually I felt almost like overwhelmingly busy for the last probably year and a half. Um, and, and, um, Ironically, it's those mundane tasks that have become kind of a breath of air for me or an opportunity to rest um, for me um, and have almost become some of my favorite tasks because they allow me that opportunity to not um, be busy with something and to actually think. So kind of my solace has become, um, you know, during the summer it was, weeding my garden and attending to my garden. Um, and, uh, more often than not washing the dishes and like, and cleaning the kitchen kind of things. And so, um, you know, I think that's also part of life, like you said, and, and relating it back to Dr. Hanley's, um, learning to love life that there is purpose in the mundanity of, of just, you know, existing and and doing these tasks. Um, but that in some ways, like those also become opportunities for us to learn and grow because they allow us that space to do so, um, where we're, we're at a, a point when we can think, you know, how often do we actually take time to sit down and think? For me, it goes back to that idea of, you know, if I'm not moving, I don't feel productive, but but these tasks allow me kind of the occupation of my hands or my body, um, but the free, uh, the the freeness of my mind and, and the opportunity to allow that to be the space in which I can think. Beautiful. That Yeah, that is so beautiful. And I, I love, yeah, that idea
1: that you mentioned, Abby, of just even mundane work can be rest, right? That yeah. we often talk about you know, resting from our labors, but I don't think we, I know I don't understand what rest can really look like. because <laughs> Rest in my mind, right. As a kid, you like, I remember like my dad taking us on adventures so that my mom could rest and rest in for her was like sleeping, right. Cause she, she had four chit for kids and it was hard to like actually get rest. But I think, you know, as a single person with with no children and you know, my labors are, I, I use air quotes again, my labors are very different than someone else's. And so learning how to rest can look different, right? And yet there's still an element of, um, you know, like you said very beautifully, um, these, these smaller tasks, right? These smaller tasks that are our work in many ways, but also can be a form of rest um, teach us a lot because I think, That's one of the great lessons of turning again to the earth, right? Turning again to, um, and I love that even King Benjamin says that, you know, he'll return to Mother Earth, right? And I don't know if that phrase was used before um, he said it in the Book of Mormon, but that's such a beautiful idea that uh, in returning to the earth, we're returning to almost a rest, right? Because there's care within the relationship between a mother and a child there. And I, um, I wanted to share a really beautiful image that my therapist shared with me because I was feeling kind of like you expressed, Abby, that, that I felt so busy. I was working multiple jobs at once and felt overwhelmed, um, and yet couldn't kind of hone in on, um, progressing towards a, a bigger goal and like not understanding Myself, who've often been driven by like, oh, I will apply to grad school and I will go down this path and feeling a great lack of, of progress or movement towards the goal. And my my really wonderful therapist sharing with me this image of a fallow field um, and, you know, explaining that in the process of agriculture, a fallow field, which once was, you know, cultivating and growing crops is allowed to rest. Um, and is allowed to, which already has the field already has in the soil all that it needs. But the the field itself, that space, that soil, gets to rest and then cultivate, and things are happening underneath the surface because what's there is needed. But she said, "Think of yourself, fallow field," and I um, was really moved by that because it was precisely the lesson that I think I needed to understand that process of growth that. Um, it was a time of rest and I'm in that period now still of just trying to understand what my next steps are. And, you know, like we mentioned before struggling with that need to be productive and to produce um, something to show that like I've used my time. Well, Um, but what I, what I love about um, that idea is that I, you know, I was redirected to observing and learning from this physical earth, right? Of the processes that are right before our eyes um, and that produced so much for us, but that can also be so instructive and so beautiful in their simplicity and in their their wisdom, right, of God set it up this way, right? And God wants us to see the reflections of how our own life can be cultivated with patience and with, you know, with time to become what we are to become. Um, and that's, that's incredible. It's beautiful to me that the earth holds all of that for us.
0: The, essentially, what we're what we're trying to do is we're trying to learn how to cultivate contentment. What does it mean to be content, right? Uh, and we're trying to we're trying to learn contentedness so that we can live a simple life. And so there's there's two there's two things that I want to talk about is contentedness and how we can develop that, and also what does it mean to live a simple life and what are the benefits of living simple simply. Um, so, why is contentedness spiritually important? Like what, what, what spiritual values, what spiritual gifts do we get out of, um, learning how to be content?
1: Um, that's a great question. And the first thought I had was contentment, um, instructs me in what is absent when contentment is filling that space, right? What is absent is anxiety for me. Um, the, again, the frenetic worry about how I'm using my time or what I'm producing, contentment um, means that there is a, a, a peaceful, settled feeling of like I'm fine, how I am. Right? Like, you know, if I if I have an hour or two and I'm just sitting and thinking or whatever it is, the the contentment can can be okay with how that time is being used right and the absence of um these very not helpful emotions of anxiety or worry or looking for something right I think that's what has confused me the most about um social media and in as much as I consume it I continue to be confused by it because I'm often searching for something and don't even realize it Um, and I think that's in many ways the opposite of contentment right of being contented means that you have what you need and you're not trying to get anything. And that goes back to our consumer culture, right? Of um, cultivating contentment would be cultivating. I don't need anything else right now. Right. I'm, I'm, I have all of all that I need to, to live. Right. And if if I expand that thought, then like contentment in my life could be like, well, I don't, I don't need to, Say, for a new car, or you know whatever other leveling up thing it is. So I think that's one um, one beautiful side of contentment is the absence of these harmful emotions of anxiety or
2: seeking you know whatever. Um I'm also reminded of that scripture in First Timothy. Um, and I think it's chapter six. I was just trying to find it. Um, but essentially that godliness with contentment is great gain. Um, oh, yes. I and remember that, that scripture. I think sometimes we think of being content as kind of being stagnant um, or that there's stagnation in our process if we're content um, because it means we're not striving for more. But I love that scripture because it's saying, you know, with godliness um, accompanying contentment that we're still gaining from from that contentment and, and from our faith. Um, you know, if we're, even in that state, it's not a stagnant state.
0: Yeah. And I think the growth that accompanies, um, learning contentedness is not an external growth. It's an in, it's an internal yeah. growth. Right. And I think we're conditioned to, to see growth as an external thing, yeah. right. It, it's a change in behavior. It's a change in, in the things that I have, it's a change in the people that I associate with, but I think what God actually wants from us is an internal growth. He wants us to grow inward. He wants us to deepen our experience so that we can better experience him in, in the, you know, every, everyday reality.
1: That's beautiful. Um, well, maybe we can connect that to your other question, um, Madison of how to live a simple life, right? Well, I
0: think I want Um, to talk about how do we cultivate a sense of contentment, right? Because it's one thing to talk about it, but it's another thing to say, how do we actually develop that capacity?
1: Yeah. So, well, I I think, yeah, I think in part it's um, consuming less, right? Being happy with what we have, Um, cultivating contentment as like a single person at this time in my life um i i feel motivated to be more thoughtful about what i'm buying um more thoughtful about what i'm eating and how i'm preparing that food right and i i do care a lot about the impact that my purchases have um i've i've had that thought again and was reminded of it from many kind of forces talking about the election and how important our vote is um, and being reminded that, you know, anytime we purchase something, we're essentially upvoting that thing in importance, not only in our life, but in our society and our culture. Um, and so being very aware of that, um, you know, the way that I spend my money, um, is contributing to the type of, the, the type of life that I'm leading, but also the, The importance of certain items in our society and so cultivating contentment um i think in part for me is recognizing the power of my dollar right and how i spend it um but also then how that reflects back onto my own value system right of like oh do i spend the most money on um you know the things that i wear or um and what is the what is the ultimate goal of of that of like am I trying to fit in and impress, or am I trying to clothe myself in order to do the work that I need to do? Um, and that's that's a that's a tricky balance to kind of strike or maybe it's a it's a difficult thing to just let go of. and and maybe that's reflective of where I'm at of just like I think it's a tricky balance. of like, oh, how can I be sort of stylish but not look like I care too much or not spend too much? One um, really maybe the contented path is to not care at all and to meet your basic needs and to clothe yourself in simple basic ways, which I know little Benyon was a big proponent of, right? Yeah. Like he believed in um, the simplicity of even like the clothes that we wear. Um, so I think that's part of the cultivating contentment is even, you know, reflecting on on why and how we do that.
0: Well, I think what it, what it is, is it's, it's what being content means is it means reflecting on why am I doing anything at all? Yeah. Right. Is it's, it's not necessarily, Oh, I, I, I need to dress simply, but why am I needing to, to look a certain way? And if it's because if it's some external reason, like I need this particular brand of clothing for the sake of my social group there's probably a problem there. Right. But if it's, I need this brand of clothing because, because of something internal, I don't, I don't know because of something internal, right. There's a different, it's a different energy to it. There's a different contentedness. I don't know. There's a different energy to it.
2: Well, I'm just thinking of what Rachel said. Um, and also like our recent push towards mindfulness, um, just like in our culture too. Um, and kind of allowing that to, um, inform myself about the decisions that I'm making. Um, I think in the past and I still struggle with this, um, but just like not making kind of impulse purchases or, um, purchases of things that I don't need because I feel like it will fulfill some some sort of void. Um, and a lot of the time it's like an emotional void, or it's something that I'm trying to gain um, mentally um, that I, in a weird way, feel like will be fulfilled through a, a purchase or a physical gain, if that makes sense. Right. Um, and so the practice of mindfulness and, and kind of employing those considerations, similar to what Rachel was talking about, has been very effective for me in self-evaluating and saying, okay, what are the reasons I'm making this purchase? Why do I feel the need to make it? Or, you know, where am I really, um, like, where does it take me? Does it fulfill an actual need or is it fulfilling, um, you know, a false sense of Accomplishment or um, hope or happiness that can't actually be fulfilled by that physical good. What I really need is connection through other people, um, a regrounding with the earth. Um, you know, a moment to myself, some kind of reprieve, whatever that right. is. You and know?
0: you know, it's not necessarily purchases like monetary, but it right. could be anything. It could be, yeah. why am I looking at my phone right now?
2: Yeah, exactly. Why,
0: why do I, why do I feel this internal buzz that I, that there's a void that needs to be filled? Yeah. Yeah. And so it's really, it's cultivating. And I, I love that you brought up mindfulness because I, obviously I've said before, I'm a huge fan of Eastern spirituality. And one of the key tenets of Eastern, Eastern spirituality is meditation. And that's what meditation does is it cultivates this inner, it kind of sharpens your, your capacity to pay attention to the moment and not be dislodged by all the feelings and all the thoughts that are thrown at you by your, your by your brain at every moment, right? So that you can discern between, oh, I have this this need to to look at my phone or I have this need to make this purchase. It it creates a little bit of space for you to be able to reflect and say, Yeah, why am I doing this and can I make a choice differently? Yeah. Or you know, is yeah, so I'm, I'm a huge fan of con- contemplation and meditation because I also think that um, co- contemplative meditation also enhances your capacity to be content with simple things. Like when was the last time any of us have felt, when we were doing dishes, actually felt what water running over our skin feels like, right? It feels really cool. It feels really – it feels – unique and like is really enjoyable. And how often are we just blind and numb to the the uniqueness of life because we don't have the capacity to pay attention to it, right? And so meditation and contemplation help help us be able to like focus our our capacity for attention and gain a little bit more control over it, right? Cuz even right now when I'm sitting here I'm thinking, "Oh wow, this sweater on my arm feels it feels, it, it doesn't feel, you know, one way or the other, it just feels and how unique it is to have that experience at all. And to be alive at all, it's just, it's, it's weird. It's uncanny, it, you know, but there's a lot of enjoyment. Out of, I don't know.
1: <laughs> yeah. That, um, that's a great thought. And it reminds me again of, um, the school that I was working at with you know, emotionally disturbed kids. I think that one of the directors, one of our, you know, principals, the number number one thing that we can teach them um, was to how to regulate <clears throat> their own emotions and their own body, and it's it. I mean, as a teacher, as an academic teacher, I was like, wow, like that that is the key, right? Because like often we're struggling and kind of fighting between behavior versus learning, right, and academic learning, and yet the number one task for these kids who are really struggling with um, often imbalances or just you know, a whole array of other, other, other factors, emotional factors is how can they learn to regulate and recognize what their body is telling them. Right. And you're saying a very similar thing, Madison, of just like the contentment, um, is, is, is connected, right. Is connected to the state of our body, right. Of, of the recognition of like, do I know what's going on? Right. Do I know what's fueling this frenetic, you know, finger swiping or whatever it is. And, Um, again, like it it returns for me to that idea of, um, of being able to pause and ask that, that great question that I think both of you mentioned of just like, what am I seeking? Right. And that the principles of the gospel, um, even our prophet now, President Nelson is, is sort of pushing us towards um, being able to answer that question, right. Of like, we, if we can get good at asking it right of having these moments of mindfulness of being able to check in with our body of because I, I feel like I'm you know I pride myself I'm like oh I gonna ask good questions and like blah 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 but like at a certain point it's like okay, but when can you start answering those questions or um, moving to that place where you're like acting on um, the, the the question that you're asking right of like what am I seeking? well we're told to seek Christ, right we're told to, to listen, to try and hear his voice. Um, and that, that mindfulness is, is such an incredible step to get to that. Right. But like, you have to walk yourself further to not only asking, um, and I, I, I I say this for myself, like I, I, it's not enough for me to just be like, what am I doing with my time right now? It's like, okay, good question. But like, what, what, what comes after that? Right. Of like, am I seeking, to feel connected to other people, right? Because like in unplugging from social media, um, you know, I've felt the absence of connection with other people. And then I ask, well, what other ways are there to connect? Plenty, right? There's so many ways to connect. And so moving myself from one kind of phase of mindfulness and, you know, even then finding the contentedness to again, seeing how that plays out, right, seeing that connection of getting to, um, and maybe I should use answer, like answer to the question more loosely, and just like, because it's hard to say that I can like answer definitive questions about like, what I'm seeking always, but I think in many ways, you can, Of just like, at this moment, I feel, you know, untethered, and I want to feel connected to someone then maybe it's because I don't feel connected to myself or to my body or to my own spirit. Right. And so there's just sort of a lot in that space, but I think that's really motivated by a great question of cultivating that contentedness um, and how those things are related. Wow.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, this, I, I honestly think this, central idea is one of the most important things that we, that we can talk about. Um, because I think what contentment does is it frees us. It like literally it liberates us to live simply that we don't have to have these complex, huge, like lives with so many moving pieces that really a good life. It looks pretty simple. Um, and so let's talk about why simplicity is a spiritual value. You know, Jesus lived a very simple life. Um, he had very little and he commanded his apostles to have very little. In fact, he, he called them away from their professions. Um, the Franciscans, I've already talked about how Richard Rohr, I'm a huge fan of Richard Rohr. He is, he is after the order of St. Francis. Franciscans take vows of of poverty in their, in their, in their, uh, in their order. um, So what is this, what is not just the spiritual value, but also maybe the cultural value of living a simple life?
2: I think it goes back to something that Rachel said originally, um, in that it, it allows us to maintain kind of grounding within the true meaning of, of what it means to be human. Um, and that is our ability to empathize, um, and, and create meaning through our life too. Um, and I think, you know, simplicity, um, allows for, uh, greater contentment, you know, and because if you're always seeking to have more you're never going to be content. You're always going to be seeking for that what's next and, and how to achieve more um, regardless of how much you have. And so I think if you can find contentment in the simplicity, um, then you will remain grounded in that, in that understanding of what it means to be um, human and also part of a community.
1: That's really beautifully said. And, I agree with that. I I think your thought, Abby, of you know, when when you stop seeking, right, and you you find contentedness, um, I think another another benefit from that is that you be you can begin to look beyond yourself, right? And you know, that idea of living the law of consecration means that then, then you can begin to connect to other people, right? If you feel content enough. And sometimes it's not full contentedness, right? Maybe it's you're seeking to feel connected to someone else and it's not being filled. And so you go out and you find someone to help or to serve. And, and that does fulfill, you know, that, that gap that you are feeling. Um, And that reminded me um, your thought, Abby, of, you know, the, even the process of like repentance that we see in the scriptures, I think is an act of seeking out contentment, right? Because as as kind of the natural man, the natural beings that we are, we are kind of constantly in flux of like wanting and not wanting and learning how to simplify or, or, you know, let go of things. And I think of um, Enos, um, you know, in the, the short book of Enos, it's, it's such a beautiful book. I love it so much, but his process of really wrestling with, you know, this, this feeling of, of not being enough and being sinful. And then, receiving the forgiveness right and to me that's almost that is a form of ultimate content contentedness right of being forgiven of your sins and then seeing Enos immediately turn and say okay I know so many people that need this feeling too right I want to bring my brother and, and my all the people that I know and care about to this same feeling and you can see that in Nephi of Lehi in the, in the tree, the vision of the tree of life, right. Of wanting to share these feelings of joy, right. The feeling of contentedness is meant to turn us outward. Once we've, once we find it within ourselves, once we, once we are a heart at peace, we can become more, um, you know, community minded, more focused on those around us. And, and I think that again, the story of Enos is really beautiful to me because Um, at the very end of his life, you know, his short chapter, he says, I've gloried more in that work of bringing others to Christ, right? So I feel like you could say that he's operating from a place of inner contentedness and outwardly is seeking for the benefit of others, right? On behalf of other people, of them also finding that joy um, and that contentedness. And so I feel like again, the lesson that I feel like I need to learn and I'm still learning is that process of repentance is meant to bring joy and it's meant to bring a peaceful equilibrium to my life, right, to my soul that that I think is very related to contentedness, right? Of feeling like, okay, like I am more in control of my actions and my thoughts and emotions. I'm able to regulate myself and I think that's where um, contentedness can come from as well.
0: You know, when I think about living a simple life, I think you know what. What are the what are the the inherent natural gifts of living a a simple life? I think one of them um, we have to remember that this podcast is about the Earth. You know, and living a simple life probably means that I'm I'm content with less, which means I my my existence extracts less from the world mm-hmm. right that i i'm content with the with the gifts and the bounties of my own breath and water and meals and and the simplicity of that that i don't need to see my name in lights right i don't need to i don't need the this huge story where i'm like where i'm a billionaire blah 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 right and i i've got this huge empire i don't need that right and so my life will require less of, of the ecological network that I'm a part of. And it allows me to live. Si- the, the simplicity allows me to be less of a burden and to be more of a blessing on, on the the greater system uh, as a whole and as well. And this might um, betray some of my own internal internal radical colors. Uh, the, the, si- the more simple I live my life, the less um, the more, I'm able to freely critique the systems that are outside of me, right? I'm fr- able to more freely critique the man, right? Because I'm less I'm less entangled in the systems that other, the, the, that it wants to entangle me in, right? That if I'm less entangled in the in the attention system of social media and phones that I'm more I have more presence of mind to be able to actually critique that system and to be able to liberate others from that system. Right. Um, not that phones and social media are inherently bad, but, um, but the, there is, there are biases in our brains. Like for instance, the, the cash bias that if I, if my paycheck, if, uh, if, if my paycheck requires me to be blind to certain informations or certain truths about the world, my brain will blind me to them. Right. Um, and the, the, the more simply I'm able to live my life, the more, the more I'm going to be able to see the world for as, as it is, and be able to critique the systems that are causing harm to the world. Right. You guys have any thoughts?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing you said, I think is sort of this beautiful, um, paradox, because you said like the more that you live simplistically, like the less that you have to rely on, like the greater world around you. And yet, um, I think that the kind of the paradox there, which is a beautiful thing is if you are, you know, living simplistically for, for example, in food, right. And we're not buying things that are out of season or that are, you know, things that cause a huge impact on the land, like meat, like red meat, for example, which, you know, has a much greater kind of energy consumption. You, you would then be, more connected to the the physical land around you, right? Say you were growing your own fruits and vegetables in your own land, like you would be even more connected to the, the immediate place that you are in. Um, and I think that would be a beautiful thing because um, that simplicity would, you know, in a way kind of flip on its head to turn into um, the, co- the more complex system of being involved in your ecological um, environment and those cyclical um, growth and stuff like that which i think would be you know that is a simple way of living and yet it involves more of you right it involves more of your your effort and your body and in creating interacting with that simplicity and that and that's you know one example of food but i think that could be true of other processes as well um and then you said something really great about of detaching from other things in the outward world and then being able to to have the ability to critique, to see more freely, perhaps. Um, and I um, remember watching George Hanley's address on criticism, Compassionate Charity, again, recently, and him making a point, a really beautiful point about um, part of criticism is also receiving criticism, right, of, of hearing other people's criticism. Um, and I think that's a really beautiful, the, a beautiful part of that, um, ability to then see clearly, but also to receive clearly, too, right? Because I, I think of our divided nation and our our inability often to hear an opposing view. and and George's point being like, okay, if we're if we're able to free ourselves to the extent that we can um, make criticism, it also means that we can hear it from other people. And again, I think that is motivated by Um, The empathy that is cultivated in that process that you're talking about, Madison, also of like detaching um, of not wanting to consume as much. Right. And and being able to then connect and see see clearly across differences. Right. And I think that is another benefit of of finding contentedness in ourselves, because then we can receive someone else's contentedness in in a very different worldview and opinion. Um, more readily and more kindly, even.
0: Well, let's uh, let's let's kind of move this thing to a close. The last topic that I wanted to talk about um, was, you know, when we when we develop a sense of contentedness and uh, are able to kind of recognize the fullness of the present moment. I think one of the most important things that we recognize is the giftedness of life, the giftedness of reality. Right. Um, and not just the giftedness, but the gratuitous nature of reality. And I mean, gratuitous in, in the good sense that it's gratis, it's free. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I have a, I have a story to tell that, that is about kind of the gratuitous nature of life and that something that enhanced me to, uh, or, was able to, anyways, I'll just tell the story. Um, two summers ago, I was on a staff retreat, uh, on a river trip in Southern Utah on the San Juan river. Um, and, uh, it was, it was the desert it was the middle of August and it was super duper hot. Right. And so I'm drinking water. Uh, cause you know, the, the last thing you want to do is have is to be dehydrated in the, in the middle of the desert and in the, in the heat of the day. Right. And so I was, I was being really careful to, to hydrate, um, probably too careful. In fact, I was too careful to hydrate, um, because a day and a half into the river trip, um, I, the, the second night I was in my tent and couldn't get to sleep and felt kind of sick and gross. And I was like, Oh no, I, I think I'm going to throw up. (laughs) So I, I, uh, I leave the tent and I, 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 you know, lose my guts. And, uh, this happens for the rest of the night where I'm, 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 I'm throwing up for, for the entirety of the night. And I'm like, Oh no, I'm losing water when every time I go, every time I go vomit. So I'm like, I need to be drinking more water. So every time I, you know, I'm washing my mouth and I'm putting more water in turns out, um, in the morning, uh, that I uh, I was hyponatremic. And what hyponatremia is, is when you are waterlogged, you have drinking, you've had too much water. There's too much water in your body. Um, And so, and this is really dangerous because your body, in order to function for your brain and your heart to be able to function, you need a correct balance of water and electrolytes and sodium in your body. And so I didn't have enough sodium in my body and I had too much water. And so your heart and your brain, in order for the electricity in your body to be able to run your neurons, you need this, you need the electrolytes. Right. So I didn't have enough. And so the danger, the danger is if you, you balance too quickly, you could have a stroke or a heart attack and you could die. And so, uh, in the morning it became clear that I was hyponatremic and it, it, and I needed to be balanced. Um, but the fear is that if you balance too quickly, um, that it could, all the salt could rush to your brain or your heart and could kill you. And so I had a brush with death, um, on this river trip. Uh, and I ended up being evacuated, not, not a helicopter. We just kind of, we floated me down the river and, and the, uh, the nice sheriff down in Blanding found me and, um, didn't find me like Moses <laughs> was found in, <laughs> he, he was there waiting what for us. You know? Um, and then, you know, took me to the emergency clinic there in, in Blanding, Utah, uh, and I was hooked up to an IV all night and I was fine. My parents oh. came down, you know, rushed in the middle of the night and you know, I, 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 was, I was fine. But upon reflection, I was, I was one or two decisions away from dying from ending it all. Right. That if I had made the choice to, to stay there on the river trip, if I had made the choice to kind of not tell anyone that I was sick, I could have died. Um, and that, you know, for, you know, about a month after this experience, I was kind of awash in this glow of, oh my gosh, I almost died. Every <laughs> aspect of my life right now is a gift to me because I almost didn't have this. Um, and I remember, uh, and even now telling the story, I, uh, I'm, you know, getting a little emotional about it that I remember even just driving down, uh, the, you know, Center Street in Provo and looking at the mountains in August and thinking this is such a gift, just to be able to see these mountains, to be alive. And I think what we get so jaded to in our lives is the absolute gratuitous nature of life, that it's for free. That the best, the best things about life are absolutely for free. That our relationships with each other don't cost anything. The sunsets. Every day we get a sunset and how beautiful those sunsets are. And all we have to do is pay attention. We just have to show up. And it's so, it's just, it's just grace. Life is just nothing but grace and goodness. And I, if we can just pay attention to it. And anyways, the, yeah, I of course, got numb to it over time because that's just the nature of life, right? You get numb to the gratuitous nature of, of reality. But I, uh, mm-hmm. I'll forever remember that the summer that I almost died <laughs> and, uh, kind Very of cool. the, the lesson that it taught me was, was that being alive is an absolute gift and it's gifted in the way that I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm not doing anything to deserve it. I don't deserve to be able to see those sunsets. I don't deserve to be able to see the mountains. I don't deserve to be alive, but I am. And I get to, I get to be here and I get to feel it and I get to drink water and love the taste of water, but not too much because I don't want to get hyponatremic again. Uh, But, uh, but, you know, so I'm really cautious about my salt intake now. Um, But that, that every moment is saturated with this grace and, and with divine light. And if we can just pay attention to it, the gratuitous nature of reality will overpower us. And I am in love with that, and I think that is the most important thing.
1: That is that's a really beautiful story, and it feels actually very fitting that like that would have been your issue, right? Of like consuming too much of a good thing, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like water, of just like out of balance. Then, so I feel like that's that's so you, Madison. But that's really a beautiful um, sentiment too. That and and this is might be my last thought, I guess. Of just. Echoing that that feeling of you know there's so much in the world around us and I I think I'd be remiss to be speaking about all of these things and not mention one of my favorite um, writers and authors her name's Nan Shepherd she's the woman um, a Scottish writer uh, like the interwar period in the 30s and 40s in Scotland and she says some of the most beautiful things about using our bodies to appreciate the world and feel connected to the world and she wrote um about an ecological kinship um, through our bodies and she she would write the eye brings infinity to my vision and she would you know ask questions like how can i number the worlds to which the eye gives me entry the world of light of color of shape of shadow um, and she really believed that the body was paramount to that experience, right? But that the experience um, was was pushing us towards something greater, right? And she went on to say um, about, you know, that interaction with the physical world. She says, it is, as with all creation, matter impregnated with mind. But the resultant issue is a living spirit, a glow in the consciousness that perishes when the glow is dead. It is something snatched from non-being, that shadow which creeps in on us continuously, and can be held off by continuous creative act. So simply to look on anything, she says, such as a mountain, with the love that penetrates to its essence, is to widen the domain of being in the vastness of non-being. Man has no other reason for his existence, um, and I think that's so beautiful because, as you know, as a student, someone. Who wants to be closer to God? Who is trying and failing all the time? That that gift of the body that you're speaking so beautifully about, Madison, um, is is the means to connect with the creation around us, right? And 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 the purpose of our existence is to is to connect, right? And to see and to use our bodies and to feel um, all of these beautiful things. And you know, I, I can't say it better than than she said. Just to use even our eye to, to see the world is, is such a gift and such a beautiful thing. Um, and I, yeah, I don't feel like I can say anything else other than that, but I wholeheartedly agree with, um, that sentiment.
2: Yeah. Again, amen. I just, yeah, I don't feel like I have much more to contribute on, um, what's already been said, but just that. The simplicity um, with which the message that we've been trying to communicate um, so beautifully ties into the idea of of contentment and also living a simple life as well. Um, and like you said, just the, the idea that we have been given a body um, and a spirit with which to act on this earth um, and that those are the most important things to us and anything beyond you know our faith and our our body and our mind um feels quite um luxurious i guess um when you really when you really boil it down to um the nature of life and the importance of life itself
0: yeah no um, thank you both for this tremendous conversation Amen. this morning it has been an absolute joy um, i uh, I want to end on, I'm, I know we both are aware that George Handley loves Derek Walcott. Um, the, yes. uh, the, the poet and writer from the, from the Caribbean. Um, and so I thought what I would do was read, uh, love after love the, the poem, uh, by Derek Walcott, Derek Walcott, which is absolutely, um, uh, right. It resonates very much with the conversation we've had. So I'll That's just, great. I'll just read yes. that and that'll be the last thing we do. Um, this is love after love by Derek Walcott. The time will come when with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again. The stranger who was yourself, give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your life.
2: Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Bristlecone Firesides. If you liked this conversation, please subscribe and share widely with your friends, family, and neighbors consider leaving us a rating through the podcasting app of your choice. For more from Abby, Madison, and the Bristolcomb family, follow us on Twitter and Instagram and visit our website to enjoy more earthy content of faith, activism, and belonging to the earth. From the Aspen Mountains, Juniper Forests, Red Rock Deserts, and Salty Lakes of Utah, we wish you peace and goodness as you strive to find yourself in the family of the earth.